You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Hey, welcome once again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad to see your faces this morning. So glad to have you with us. We also greet those who are tuning in right now online. Glad that you're able to join us online as well. Uh, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of First Kings? Open in your Bibles or on your smartphone. Go to First Kings chapter 13. First Kings chapter 13 is where we'll be studying this morning. One of the things we like to do here at Whitefields, we like to study through entire books of the Bible. And the reason we do that is because we feel this is a way in which we, you know, kind of allow God to speak to us on his terms, right? The way that he's given us the scriptures, we want to hear them and take them chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so what we've been doing here in First and Second Kings, we've been, we start at the beginning, and we're working our way through these books that cover 400 years of the history of the nation of Israel. And as we do that, though, I want you to know this, that our focus is not on history for history's sake, but we understand what Jesus Jesus said, as he said, these scriptures testify of me. And so as we're studying about these kings and these kingdoms, the failings of men and the failings of earthly kingdoms, what they do in us is that they stir up within us a desire for the true king and his kingdom, Jesus Christ and the kingdom which is to come. So that's why we call the series Desiring the Kingdom. Would you please bow your heads with me and pray as we get into our study. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word today. We're so thankful for it, Lord, and we thank you for your spirit who leads us into all truth. So Lord, this morning, we just avail ourselves to you. We give you our ears. We give you our hearts and our minds. I ask that you would speak to us, transform us. Lord, if there's any kind of false thing in our lives that you want to root out, Lord, help us that we would be surrendered to you as we hear your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, something that's really popular these days, especially here where we live, is for people to say something along these lines. Like, they might say, I'm spiritual, but I don't necessarily adhere to any one organized religion. Have you ever heard people say that kind of thing? Or they might say, Instead, what I've done is I've constructed my own way of believing or worshiping God, right? I've structured my own belief system. Uh, and it's really common for people as they do that, what they'll do is they might borrow some elements from Christianity, maybe some other elements from Buddhism or from, you know, maybe take in some reincarnation, add in some positive thinking. And this is really common, but the question for us is this. How should we think of that? What should we make of that? Is that a good approach to spirituality? And if it's not, then why not? Like, can we just, you know, who's to say that uh, one way of worshiping God is good and another way is not, right? Who's to say that is true? Now, some people might say it doesn't even matter how you worship or what you worship as long as whatever you believe or whatever you think, as long as it makes you a better person, as long as it makes you kinder. Is that true? And if not, why not? In the passage we're looking at today, we're going to be looking at these questions because we're looking at a man named Jeroboam who did exactly that. He created his own way of worshiping God. And as we look at his story, we're going to be exploring this question. What is the difference between false worship and true worship? And how can we know, right, whether our worship is good and true or whether it's false and made up, right? How can we possibly know? Well, there are some answers, and we're going to see them as we study this text today. The title of today's message is From False Worship to True Worship. 
That's something we see in our text, but it's also what we want for our own lives, right? We want to move from false worship to true worship. Here in, in 1 Kings chapter 13, what, what I've been doing every week is I've been giving you one sentence that summarizes what this text is about and what we're going to learn in it. And I'd love it if you would write that down, memorize it, because here's what I think about. When you leave today and you meet somebody and they're like, hey, what did you guys talk about at church today? Now you know, right? You have this sentence. This is what we talked about. This is what we learned. And what we've been doing is we've been taking that sentence, and then as we study, we've been studying, breaking that sentence down and studying it part by part as we walk through the text. So here's our sentence for today. This is what we learned in this passage. As Jeroboam creates his own religion, we see the dangers of disregarding God's words and the right way to return from a crisis. So as Jeroboam creates his own religion, we see the dangers of disregarding God's words and the right way to return from a crisis. Let's look at that first part that talks about Jeroboam created his own religion. Now in our study last week in chapter 12, as we've been going chapter by chapter through this text, we saw how the kingdom of Israel was divided into two rival kingdoms. Up until the time of Solomon, the people of Israel, the kingdom of Israel was a single united kingdom. But after Solomon died, we saw last week how the kingdom split apart into two rival kingdoms. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and it basically uh, comprised the area around Jerusalem and the desert to the south. The northern kingdom took the name Israel, and it was much larger. It was 10 out of the 12 tribes. It was much larger of the two kingdoms they had more people, and they had all the good arable land, right? A lot of times when we think about Israel, I think people imagine it as this very deserty place, and some parts are, but the northern part of Israel is actually very green. There's a lot of farmland up there, and so that was all inherited by the northern kingdom of Israel. In other words, the northern kingdom had all the people, they had all the good land, they had all the advantages, except for one thing. There was one thing they didn't have, and that was Jerusalem. They didn't have Jerusalem. And Jerusalem mattered, guys, because Jerusalem is where the temple was located. And that was a big deal because the temple was the thing that united the Jewish people. They were united in their identity as the chosen, called people of God, called to know God, called to worship God, called to be redeemed by God. And the temple played a very important role in their lives. Seven times a year, every able-bodied Jewish person was expected to and required to go up to the temple for special events which celebrated what God had done for them in their history. And during those events, they would worship and they would sacrifice. But for Jeroboam, this was a problem. Because remember, Jeroboam was the first king of the breakaway northern kingdom of Israel. He had led the majority of the people of Israel to break away from the rule of the kings in Jerusalem and start this new kingdom in the north. And the problem was the temple was in Jerusalem, which was not in his new kingdom. And Jeroboam realized that this might be a problem. You see, if people from his kingdom started going down to the southern kingdom to worship for these festivals and to, to worship God there, make sacrifices, then they might start wondering, hey, why are these kingdoms divided? Why don't we maybe reunite the kingdoms? And that way, you know, we could all be together again. Jeroboam 
He's, for his own sake, he said, I can't let that happen. I can't let the kingdoms be reunited. Why? Because then I'm out of a job. And then guess what? People will call me a traitor. They'll say that I went against the United Kingdom of Israel. And so in Jeroboam's mind, it's in his best interest to keep Israel divided. And so in order to prevent people from his kingdom from going down to Jerusalem to sacrifice and worship there, here's what Jeroboam did. And we saw this in chapter 12. Jeroboam created his own religion his own religion. He constructed two golden calves and he built altars in Bethel and in Dan. And it says here in chapter 13, verse 1, Behold, a man came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Remember, Bethel is where he has one of his altars. And it says, Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. Okay, so what's happening here? as we begin chapter 13, is that Jeroboam is standing at one of the altars which he built for his new religion. And what we are seeing here, this is the inauguration ceremony. Just like how Solomon had an inauguration of the temple in Jerusalem, right now Jeroboam is having an inauguration for his temple to his new religion there in Bethel. That's what's happening here. So let's, let's take a second and just talk a minute about this new religion that Jeroboam created. Jeroboam's new religion was a mix of Judaism and some elements of pagan religions from the surrounding nations. Now, they kept all of the same holidays and sacrifices as Judaism. That way they could compete, you might say, with the temple in Jerusalem. But what they did is they added things to the worship of God, which God had actually forbidden. And that those things he added, he added multiple gods, for example. Then he added, you know, idols, golden idols that you could look at and pray to and see. Now, the reason why Jeroboam created this religion is because he found it expedient, right? It was practically helpful for him. Uh, he made up this religion because he felt that he could use it to control people and to control his destiny. Ultimately, he, used, he felt religion was something he could use to get what he really wanted, which was power and control. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that we've seen somebody create their own religion. In Exodus chapter 32, maybe you remember the story. Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And while Moses was up on the mountain, the other people down below, they take the opportunity and they build a golden calf. They reject God. They build a golden calf, just like Jeroboam, interestingly, and they begin to worship it. Now, the reason why they rejected God and built that golden calf is because, essentially, they were frustrated with God. They were frustrated with God. Have you ever felt frustrated with God? Well, they were frustrated with a few things. They were frustrated, number one, with God's timing. They felt that God wasn't giving them what they wanted fast enough. They weren't happy about God's timing. Secondly, they also weren't happy about their circumstances, right? They didn't like the situation that God had put them in, that they were in the desert, they lacked food, they lacked water, and they were frustrated that God had put them in this situation. And in their frustration, the people said, hey, look, if this God isn't going to give us what we want, or if he's not going to do it in the time frame that we want, then why don't we just make our own God who will give us what we want? That's literally what they did. I mean, let me ask you this. What's the point of, of worshiping a God who doesn't give you what you want, right? I mean, that's essentially what they're asking. What's the point of worshiping a God who tells you things you don't want to hear? What's the point of worshiping a God who leads you to places you don't want to go? 
Those are questions that sometimes arise in our hearts as they did in these people's hearts. But I want you to, I want you to ask yourself this question. Let me challenge you to ask yourself this question. It's a really important question. Do you view God primarily as useful or do you view God primarily as beautiful? It's a good one for you to write down, for you to think about, for you to pray through in this coming week. Do you view God primarily as useful to you? Or do you worship God because you find him beautiful to you? Do you seek God? Do you serve God primarily because you consider him potentially useful to you? Or do you worship him because you see him as beautiful? In other words, do you desire God for who he is? Or do you desire to simply use God for what he might be able to give to you or do for you? Those are two very different ways of approaching God, thinking about God, and they lead to very different actions and outcomes. But here's the thing. If you primarily think of God as being useful to you, then what about when he isn't? That's the thing. What about those times in your life when, let's say, it will be actually inconvenient for you to worship God? What about the times in your life when God won't give you the things that you want or ask for? What about the times in your life when you're going to read things in the Bible that perhaps rub you the wrong way or you find hard to accept? For many people, what they do in these times is they respond, kind of like the people of Israel, kind of like Jeroboam, where they say, well, if, the, if God won't do this, or if God, if the Bible says this, well, I can't believe in that kind of God. I don't want to follow that kind of God. But here's the question I would ask you. Do you want to worship the God who is real, the real God, the true God, or do you, would you rather worship something of your own creation? Because here's the thing. If you are only willing to worship a God who thinks the way that you think, who uh, acts the way that you would act if you were God, then think about this. You are dangerously close to actually worshiping yourself. Some of the marks of true worship that we see in this chapter that come out of this, this look at Jeroboam's false religion, here are the marks of true worship. One of the marks of true worship is that it is concerned with the truth. But another mark of true worship is that it involves surrender. Truth and surrender. These are marks of true worship. On the other hand, what are the marks of false worship? Because that's what we're talking about, right? How do we recognize false worship versus true worship? Well, some of the marks of false worship, as we see with Jeroboam, are a lack of concern for the truth. For example, Jeroboam knows that he is making this up, that this isn't, he's not worshiping God in truth. He's not concerned, though, about truth. He's concerned about what's expedient, right? Another one is insistence upon control. So whereas true worship is characterized by surrender to God, false worship is characterized by insistence on control. Now we can see this in Jeroboam's life. He's concerned with using God. He thinks of God and religion and worship as things that he can use to get what he wants and to control people and to control his destiny. Now, this is something about Christianity which sets it apart from all other religions in the world. And that is the teaching of grace and the message of the gospel. Because think about this. Sometimes you hear people say things along these lines. They might say, well, you know, all religions basically teach the same things because they all teach a set of moral principles, which they set out and say, you should follow these moral principles. And those moral principles amongst different religions 
are, are oftentimes very similar. And guess what? That's true. And that's not a secret. That's not something that we're afraid people will find out, right? No, that's, that's actually true. A lot of, you know, different religions set out different moral principles. But that's not what makes Christianity unique. What makes Christianity unique is something else. In fact, what makes Christianity unique is something that is so absolutely different that some people have suggested, and I, I agree with them, that it would be actually, perhaps Christianity shouldn't even be called a religion because in this one way, it is so absolutely different than every other religion that exists in the world. And here's what it is. Every religion in the world basically says this. Here is the way to God. Here is the list of things that you need to do in order to earn God's love and blessings and favor and earn your way into heaven. In other words, we could summarize it like this. Every religion is about how to manipulate God and save yourself. Let me say that again. Every religion is basically about how to manipulate God and save yourself, except for Christianity. Except for Christianity. Let me explain why. The message of Christianity, the gospel, which we call the good news, it doesn't say, here is the way to God. The message of Christianity is that God himself has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has come for us to do for you what you could not do for yourself. The idea that you can control God or you can save yourself is a mistake. It can't be done. But there's good news. God loves you. And he came to you in Jesus Christ to save you by living the perfect life that you could never live and by taking the judgment that you deserved in his death. And see, what happens is this. As you trust in Jesus and what he did for you, God saves you by his grace. It's a gift. And as you surrender your life to him, as you call him Lord and surrender to him, that's true worship. He leads you, he teaches you, he transforms you as a loving father. And so one of the key markers, because that's what we're talking about, right? Moving from false worship to true worship. One of the key markers of man-made religions or false worship, here's what it is. They are focused on controlling God and using God rather than surrendering yourself to God. And that's what we see here with Jeroboam in 1 Kings 13 and, and 12 and 13 as he creates his own religion. So let's, let's move on to the second part of the sentence. As Jeroboam creates his own religion, we see the dangers of disregarding God's words. As Jeroboam, remember, let's go back to our text. As Jeroboam is having this opening ceremony for this altar there in Bethel, it's, remember, this guy shows up who's sent from God from Judah. Well, let's find out what happens. Verse 2, it says, This man sent by God cried against the altar, and he said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones will be burned on you. It's a dramatic scene. Imagine this. He's having this big event. This is an opening ceremony for this altar. There are tons of people here. This is Jeroboam's big moment. And right in the middle of it, this guy stands up and interrupts the event. And he gives this prophecy that God is going to raise up a king 
in Judah to punish and judge those who make sacrifices on this altar. This is an incredible prophecy, and it's incredible because it was fulfilled exactly 340 years later. 340 years. If you want to check it out, write this down. 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23. You Bible students, go over there and read that. That's the fulfillment of this prophecy 340 years later. Now, remember this, though. Jeroboam did not know when this prophecy was going to be fulfilled. He didn't know if it's going to be fulfilled in 100 years, 200 years, or in 20 minutes. So for the rest of his life, Jeroboam is living, looking over his shoulder, wondering when this person from God is going to be sent who is going to judge him for what he's doing with creating this new religion. Check it out, verse 3. And he gave a sign. This is the guy from Judah, the prophet. He gave a sign that same day saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes on it will be poured out. So since this prophecy wasn't going to be fulfilled for many years to come, God gave an immediate sign so the people knowing would, or people watching would know this prophecy was true. Verse 4, when the king heard this saying of the man of God, which he cried out at the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar. Just imagine, it's like a movie, right, playing in your mind. He stretches out his arm and he says, seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Rather than responding to this message, because remember, every warning of judgment is also an invitation to repentance. But rather than responding to this message in humility, in surrender, in repentance, Jeroboam instead attacks the messenger. He goes after the messenger. Verse 5, here's what happens. Just as the prophet said, the altar is destroyed right then and there in an act of God. Verse 6, then Jeroboam asked this man from Judah, entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. Now let's just stop here a second. He is literally founding a new religion at this moment with his own God, this golden calf. And, but when he faces a problem, he doesn't ask his golden calf for help. He doesn't ask the, the priests of this new religion for help. He asks this man from Judah to pray to the one true God to heal him. It just shows us that Jeroboam himself doesn't even believe in this religion. He knows that he's just using it to, for political gain. But God graciously heals him. And this man from Judah graciously prays for him, which is surprising, right? Because he, he was just about to have this guy arrested and killed. But the guy's like, all right, I'll pray for you. So he prays for him. And then in verse 7, right, Jeroboam's like really glad that his hand is better. And so Jeroboam says to this prophet, who he just almost had killed, he says, hey, you know, uh, thanks for healing my hand and stuff. Why don't you come over to my house and uh, we'll have some, have some dinner. And then the prophet uh, tells him, no thanks, right? The guy's like, I want to have you over. I'll give you a reward. Thanks for healing my hand. And the prophet says, no way. In fact, he says, starting in verse 8, he says, even if you gave me half of your house, I would not come over to your house because it was commanded to me by the Lord saying, you shall neither eat bread nor water, uh, nor drink water, nor come back the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Okay, notice the danger of disregarding God's words. We see it here with Jeroboam. To disregard God's words 
leads to judgment. Because to disregard God's words is to say that you feel that you, not God, are the higher authority. It's a refusal to honor God as God. And so with Jeroboam, we see that the danger of disregarding God's words is that it sets you at enmity with God and it precipitates judgment. Now, here's where the story, if you thought it was weird, it's about to get weirder. So buckle up. Okay, you ready for this? Verse 11, here's what happens. The prophet, remember the guy who, who uh, you know, spoke this prophecy at the inauguration ceremony, he's on his way home, going back to Judah. And then another prophet, an older prophet from Israel, right, from the northern kingdom, he gets word about what happened with Jeroboam. And so this older prophet says, you know, saddle me up a donkey. And he gets on this donkey and he chases down the younger prophet and catches up to him as he's walking along the road. And what does he do? He says, hey, bro, come to my house for dinner. Now we know this guy's not allowed to go to people's houses for dinner. But you know who else knows that he's not allowed to go to people's houses for dinner? The older prophet who just invited him to dinner. And the younger prophet says, no, I can't do that. God specifically told me, don't go to anybody's house for dinner. But in verse 18, check out what the older prophet does. The older prophet says, no, 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 it's okay. You can come to my house because I'm also a prophet. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. And it tells us in verse 18, but he was lying to him. Okay, so recap here. The older prophet is purposefully trying to trick the younger prophet into doing something which God specifically told him not to do. Now, why would he do that? Isn't that a weird thing to do? Here's why. Because this older prophet is in cahoots with Jeroboam, and he's also involved in introducing this new religion into Israel. How do we know that? Here's how. Because when God wanted to give a message to Jeroboam via a prophet, there were obviously no prophets locally in Israel. He had to call somebody from the southern kingdom to travel up there, which tells us that all the prophets in the northern kingdom were compromised. They were working together with Jeroboam. So this guy included. And so what this older prophet is doing is he's essentially trying to make this younger prophet sin and disobey God. Why? Perhaps to discredit him by getting him to disobey God. That way he might be able to go around and tell people, well, hey, listen, guys, that guy who gave that prophecy at the inauguration ceremony, he was, he was not like a real man of God. He was just a weirdo who wanted to rain on our parade. And this so-called prophecy isn't something that we need to take seriously or worry about. Okay, so here, verse 19, unfortunately, the younger prophet falls for this trick and he goes to the older prophet's house and they have dinner together. Now, the younger prophet, let me say this, he should have known better. Let me tell you why. First of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and in Numbers chapter 12, those are two places where the law of Moses says, God, God explains, that when he speaks through prophets, he speaks to prophets directly, not through angels. So this should have been the first red flag to the younger prophet that this is not true, what this guy is saying. But more importantly, God has already spoken to this younger prophet clearly, specifically, unequivocally, and he should not have disregarded the clear, specific word of God 
when this other guy comes along and says that an angel spoke to him. God is not a God of confusion, right? He doesn't flip-flop. He doesn't say one thing on Monday, another thing on Tuesday. He doesn't say one thing to this person, another thing to that person. No. You know, for me and you, we have God's words given to us clearly and specifically in the scriptures. And where God has spoken specifically and clearly, if someone else comes along and they claim that they've had a vision or they were, you know, they, an angel spoke to them or, or maybe they have some kind of contradiction or new revelation that, that or some kind of new teaching or revelation that contradicts what God has already clearly said in his word, then we have to reject that message and go with God's revealed word. Paul even says in Galatians chapter 1, he says, even if I or an angel from heaven were to, an angel of light were to appear to you and preach to you a different gospel, let them be a curse, let them be anathema. What he's saying is, look, where God has spoken clearly and specifically, it's not going to change, right? And so in verse 20, as they're sitting around this table eating, the older prophet tells the younger prophet, basically he's like, gotcha. Gotcha, I tricked you into disobeying God. And now, because you've disobeyed God, now God told me you're going to die on the way home before you even make it to your house. And that's exactly what happens. As we go on, down in verse 24, we see as this guy's walking down the road, a lion comes up and kills him. And uh, yeah, just he gets killed by a lion as he's walking home. But after that happens, this older prophet, we see in the following verses, he begins to feel like a genuine sense of remorse. Like, that really wasn't cool of me to trick this guy into disobeying God so that he'd get killed. And so the older prophet, in verse 29, he gets back on his donkey. He goes, he retrieves the, the dead prophet, the younger prophet's body. He brings it back. He buries it. And in verse 32, we see that the older prophet, he admits, he confesses that this prophecy was actually true and that God is indeed going to judge Jeroboam and those who participate in this new religion and this false worship. Okay, what is this story? This story is a vivid picture in two parts of how the danger of disregarding God's words is that it leads to death. It leads to death. And that's true in our lives as well. When you and I, when we knowingly go against what God has said, it leads to death. It leads to death in our lives. It leads to death in our relationships. It leads to death, ultimately, in our souls. And this section is meant to show us how serious, how weighty a thing it is to knowingly disregard the things that God has said. It wants us to see this is how high the stakes are. This is how serious God is about his words. This is the danger of disregarding God's words. It leads to death. But here's the thing for you and I to recognize. You've done it. I've done it. Some of us might be doing it at this very moment in your thoughts, in your heart. We have disregarded the word of God. We have knowingly at times, at different times in different ways, you and I, we have knowingly disregarded the word of God. And if that leads to death, then that's a problem, isn't it? And the question is, what are we going to do? What can we do? What hope is there for you and I? Well, thankfully, this is not the end of the story. There's still one more piece, and that's the end of this sentence. As Jeroboam creates his own religion, we see the dangers of disregarding God's words and the right way to return from a crisis. Jeroboam has just been through a crisis. He was warned about God's judgment in a prophecy 
The altar was destroyed right before his eyes in an act of God. His hand was withered and then healed. And in the midst of that crisis, remember what happened. Jeroboam actually called out to God for help. He turned to God and asked for help in the midst of that crisis. But look what happens in verse 33. It says this. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way, but he made priests for the high places again from among the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests in the high places. Jeroboam cried out to the Lord in the midst of the crisis, but as soon as the crisis was over, he went right back to doing the same things he was doing before. There was no lasting change in his life. Guys, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're in a bit of a crisis ourselves right now, aren't we? Right with this virus, the pandemic, so many things going on in the world. Everything has been shaken up. Everything has been uh, changing in our lives as a result. And the question for us as we come out of this crisis, you need to ask yourself, how are you going to return from this crisis? Will you be like Jeroboam, who just went right back to his old ways as if nothing had ever happened? Or will you come to God even now, even right now, with an attitude of surrender, asking him to use this time in your life to be a real time of lasting growth, lasting change in your heart, to do something in you, in your faith, to grow you and your relationship with him. Listen, this chapter ends in verse 34 by saying this. This thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. Jeroboam's new religion, this false worship that he introduced into Israel, this left a lasting mark on Israel. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 17, when Israel is finally conquered by Assyria, it says there in 2 Kings 17 that Jeroboam's sin, this false worship, was ultimately, this was the thing that led to the demise of Israel. Again, false worship, we've been talking, what, how do we recognize false worship versus true worship? False worship is characterized by, number one, a lack of concern for the truth, and number two, an insistence on control. It, it's ideas that you can use or manipulate God rather than surrendering to God. That's the difference. You know, in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, we see that the sins of Jeroboam were still affecting this region in the time of Jesus, 900 years after Jeroboam. The heart of that northern kingdom of Israel is a place called Samaria. It's not the whole of the region, but it's the heart of the region. The heart of the region is Samaria. And in Jesus' own time, the Samaritans still had their own temple. They wouldn't go to Jerusalem. They had their own temple where they worshiped God. Their religion at the time of Jesus was still a mixture of Judaism and things from the Bible and elements of pagan religions. And in Jesus' time, there was still animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews to the point where Jewish people would not even set foot in Samaria. But Jesus did. Jesus entered into Samaria. In John chapter 4, we read about a conversation he had with a Samaritan woman. The woman was surprised that Jesus would even talk to her. But as they were talking, she, she started asking some questions. Check out what she said in John chapter 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In other words, she's saying to Jesus, Look, we've got our own tradition. 
Going back to Jeroboam, 900 years of our own tradition. You guys have your tradition. Who's to say that your tradition is right and our tradition is wrong? Isn't this the question that so many people ask these days? With all these different religions in the world, who's to say that one tradition is right and the others are false? And Jesus tells her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is telling her, Listen, if you think this is about tradition, then you have missed the point completely. Because look at what he says next. You worship what you do not know. But we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, he's saying, this isn't about tradition. This is about salvation. The whole idea of salvation comes from the scriptures, which came through the Jews. The word salvation means to rescue, rescue. And by definition, it is not something that you can do for yourself. It is something that has to be done for you by somebody else. And as we talked about before, this is something that is unique to the Bible. Whereas every other religion tells you, here are the things that you have to do in order to earn God's love and favor and blessings. Here's what you have to do to make up for the bad things you've done. The message of the Bible instead is not one of self-improvement. It is a message of salvation. It is God stepping in to save you and do for you what you could not do for yourself. And that's really good news because, guys, as we talked about, disregarding God's word leads to death. And all of us at different times and in different ways, we've been guilty of disregarding God's word. But Jesus took the death that you deserved so that in him you could have life both now and forever. And Jesus finishes this thought by saying this, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, right? That's what we're talking about, true worship. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What God is calling you into is not tradition, but relationship, relationship with him. God is spirit, and you can enter into relationship with him, but it needs to be based on truth. It can't just be your own creation of God, who you like to think that God is. It has to be God as he has revealed himself to be in truth. And he's done that in the scriptures. You know, Jesus is calling this woman to leave behind false worship. He's calling us to leave behind false worship and enter into true worship of God. And true worship of God is characterized by surrender. And so finally, I want to ask you this today. Is there any area of your life in which you haven't yet surrendered to God completely? Is there some area of your life in which you have been disregarding his words? I want to encourage you today to look to the cross. We're going to take communion. That's what we're doing. We're looking to the cross where Jesus gave his life for you. And I want to encourage you to surrender yourself wholly and completely to him who gave his life for you. That's how we move from false worship to true worship. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.